Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. Hello, everyone. This is a special edition of our podcast, Essential Questions. Since the terrorist attack on the state of Israel by Hamas on Simchat Torah, the morning of October the 7th, all of us in the Jewish world in America and Israel, and really throughout the world, have been reeling, perplexed, agonized, confused. And we are all asking ourselves so many essential questions. What happened that day? Why did it happen? What led to this moment? What's happening in Israel now? And what comes next? In trying to parse out and to claw through all of the confusion, Temple Bethel is trying very hard to open opportunities to understand the conflict and what's happening on the ground. And today we are blessed to have a conversation with Tova Lazaroff. Tova is the deputy managing editor of the Jerusalem Post, where she has worked as a correspondent since 2000. Her expertise includes coverage of the settlements, diplomacy, the United Nations, hostage situations, conflicts on the southern and northern borders, and how Israel deals with victims of terror. Before arriving in Israel in April of 2000, Tova spent eight years as a local reporter in the Boston area, where she earned 12 awards from the New England Press Association and seven from the Massachusetts Press Association for her work. She is a native of Brookline, Massachusetts, and earned her bachelor's in history from Brandeis University. What you are about to hear is the recording of a webinar that we hosted for Temple Bethel on October the 19th, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation and that you come away with a little bit more understanding of the conflict and where we go from here. So I wanted to just start a little bit by explaining to people what actually happened on the morning of October 7th, okay? And on the morning of October 7th, which was Simchat Torah morning, I was sitting in my living room in Jerusalem. And I've covered the area of, you know, um, the southern border and pretty much every Gaza war since, um, you know, I've been here and I started at the Jerusalem Post in 2001. And I'm pretty good at predicting wars. There's kind of like a pattern to how everything happens. And so I was completely, in fact, I, when I heard the siren, I thought it was a malfunction. I thought something had gone wrong. And then I thought, ah, somehow for reasons that I don't understand, something happened overnight. And now we might be in a war situation where rockets are being launched. And I kind of thought that was the extent of it. And I think that's what everybody else thought. But if you see here, right on this map, which I nicely took from um, CBS, um, right here, this is this is Gaza, right? You see this line here. And then the area right around it where you see Erez, Day Road, Kfar Aza, Nachal, Ozberry. Okay, so the darker line, that's where Israel has a border fence, okay? And it believes that that fence does a very, very, very good job of protecting it from any Hamas infiltration. It's dug underneath it to prevent tunnels. And it has a sort of, it's very, it's a very technological fence. So it relies very heavily on technology. It can notice any infiltration. It's got cameras. It's got all kinds of systems. 
on the Saturday morning, much like I thought, all the people living in these communities imagined that their biggest threat was actually for mortar fire, not even so much rockets because they're too close, for mortars that maybe might not get detected and might come over the border. Instead, what happened is that Hamas has, for two years, pl been planning an assault on the southern border. What it does is it, it takes out the entire technical system that protects this fence. So it just brings it down. Okay, and once it brings it down, it can pretty much go through the fence, which it does in many different places. The, there wasn't such a large concentration of forces along this border, and it was pretty easy for, for those um, Hamas militants or terrorists, there was about 1,500 of them, to come in and literally take over these communities. So now the people in them initially didn't quite like much like me, didn't quite know what was happening, but they knew there were sirens. So they all went into their safe rooms. And while they sat in their safe rooms, right, in some cases, the threat got mitigated because they, every community has a volunteer emergency team. And in some cases, in an unbelievable way, the emergency teams were able to really keep the terrorists at bay and protect the communities and nothing happened to them. In other cases, the emergency team was killed trying and terrorists literally overtook those communities. Um, and what they, and so if we can now go, if you can just sh show me the photo of the field. Someone can show me the photo of the field. Hello? There we go. It's up now, Tova. Ah, okay. I don't I don't actually see it on my thing, but it doesn't matter. So if you right, thank you. Okay. So if you see this, this is the back end of Kfar Aza. Okay. And Kfar Aza was one of the communities where the security team was killed really very quickly after the infiltration. If you see these buildings in the background, right, that's actually Gaza. That's a city or a town in Gaza, right? Somewhere in the middle here of the field, you can almost see it is the security barrier between Gaza and Israel. They broke through it and they came up this back end. And where you see the broken fence, that's where the terrorists entered. Um, if we can just move over to a photo of one of the houses. There you have it. Okay, so what they did is they, in Kfar Aza, for example, where I believe they killed 69 people, they took over an entire neighborhood. Um, they came in with scooters, they came in with trucks and cars. And in some cases, there was also an entire element where they literally hand glided. That's perfect, thank you. They hand glided over and literally landed in the community. They treated each house as if it was like a military you know, target that needed to be conquered. It isn't like they were just kind of in the houses. What they wanted to do was they wanted to get people out of the safe rooms. Now the people in the safe rooms could hear that there were terrorists outside. They already knew that this was not a normal situation, right? And they refused to come out. So they did not come out and they stayed in. Now, in some cases, because the terrorists didn't make it to all of 
to all of the, um, you know, to all of each community. In some cases, they hid in the um, the safe rooms and eventually were rescued by the army. There was about a three to four hour window before the army could get to these communities, because by the time people understood what was happening, by the time you could get forces into the field, that was about the three hour window. In those three hours, that is pretty much when they killed about a thousand, probably more than 1,400 people. And they did it in three different points. But for the, for these Southern border communities, the ones that they infiltrated, right, they, in some cases, you know, they tried to get into the safe room and they were successful. In other cases, they literally put explosives in the house and blew it up. That's what you can see here. Or they smoked it out, right? They started a fire and the fire caused smoke and it forced people to come out of the safe rooms. And it was in those situations that they were killed or taken hostage. The, the, can, um, the attack really targeted three different populations of people, okay? Um, because it wasn't just along the Southern border, but they also man, like these, so these are all Moshevim and Kibbutzim that live along the Southern border, but they also managed to get to two very small cities, one called Ofakim and one called um, Sterot. And then they also attacked a music festival. And each one of these three, these three populations kind of represented a different story. Okay. So the two small cities were originally built as um, Southern, as development towns. And they initially were built to host the, um, people, the Jews that came from the Arab countries, primarily Morocco, Tunisia, and Kurdistan. So when those families were forced to leave their homes in Morocco, and Tunisia, et cetera, they were then put in development towns in, you can see it over here, in Ofakim and um, in, 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 and in um, Sterot, which should be here, okay? If you go like further down over here where it says Re'im, that was a music festival, okay? And that attracted young people from all over the country. So you had these two development cities. You had you had um, a music festival that attracted people from all over the country. And you had, you know, the people that had lived in these border communities that had been there, you know, since the 30s and the 40s. And they really represent those border communities. They really are... Um, mostly made up of people from the left. And those are the people that really um, have supported every peace deal. When we had disengagement, they thought that that's when we pulled out of Gaza. They thought that disengagement was right. They, they, many of them were in groups with Palestinian neighbors in Gaza. They, um, they remembered when they could go to Gaza. They worked to help the people in Gaza. They worked to help them get medical treatment. Um, and they were, in the end, the ones that took the full the full brunt of the attack essentially the 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 depth of the attack the fact that that you could infiltrate so far into israel the number of people that were killed and the way that they were that the way that they were killed which i'm sure everyone has heard some of the stories and maybe not 
I don't need to describe it here, um, has really changed what has been a tried and true kind of equation having to do with the Gaza Strip and in some ways will change how Israelis look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, when Biden was here, he spoke about, you know, still thinking about two states. And I think there are many, many steps before you get, can get to that. Um, when when this started, as you know, we were in talks to maybe like have some kind of very large regional peace deal. But if we, I wanted to just move the dial back a little bit and talk a little bit about how we got here, right? How did we get to this moment in which for the first time since 1973, we're facing what really would be considered an, as a, an existential war, or at least that is how the people are in, in Israel are viewing it. And it would be hard to describe, to, to explain to them that that is not the case, given what happened on that Saturday, right? But if we talk about just talk about the Gaza Strip for a second, the you know the area as you all know was under the British mandate in um, 1948, and then you know there was the War of 48, and Gaza after that war was under Egyptian rule, and then you know Israel captures it in the 67 war, and they hold on to it um, all the way up until 2007. In 1993, there's the Oslo Accords. Um, the area then is moved over mostly, like many like many um, areas also in the West Bank. It comes under the rule of the Palestinian Authority. That means they're governed by a newly created Palestinian Authority, um, but the army is there. And there's some 21 settlements that are located there. In 2001, somewhere in there, 2000-2001, Hamas grows stronger in the Gaza Strip, and it starts to do do this thing where it launches rockets at Israel, but really like super small rockets, like almost something you can build, you know, in your house, maybe like the size of a desk. And I was just really starting as a reporter in Israel in that time. And so I was really very expendable. And they had heard, someone in the newsroom had heard this thing that a rocket had made it all the way from Gaza, all the way over to Steyrot, like about five kilometers. And so they sent me down to explore to see if this was really true. How, could there be such a thing as a rocket that made it all the way over to Stay Road? And so I found the place in Stay Road. And honestly, it was like a piece of metal like this big. It had made like a little dent in the sidewalk. And I remember calling back in and saying, yes, actually, you know, it seemed to have made a little hole and, and it was a rocket. And what happened since then is that the power of those rockets started to grow. In 2003, when we when we when Sharon put forward his disengagement plan, he talked about taking out, you know, the 21 settlements in Gaza and also withdrawing militarily. The idea was, is that if you took out the settlements and you took out the military and you gave the Palestinians what they wanted, which was an autonomous territory that they could control, then you would actually not have 
a conflict with them. Theoretically, right, you would be at peace with them. And you could have all kinds of commerce. In fact, they built at um, at Erez, if you see at the uppermost tip here, where it says the Erez crossing, that's Erez. So that's where we're crossing. That was going to be like this, that they imagined that that crossing would be like an international border, right? They they thought they even had a press conference about how they were going to transfer power of that crossing from the army to like the interior ministry, because you wouldn't really need it because you would be at peace. And therefore, would you necessarily need to have soldiers manning that crossing? It could be people from the interior ministry. Shimon Perez came down. He gave a whole press conference about the peace we were going to have with Gaza when, when um, Israel withdrew. Now, when Israel withdrew, it withdrew to a recognized international line. So the, the border here between Israel and Gaza, Gaza, that's an internationally recognized border. That's a pre-1967 border, and it is not in contention. Everybody knows, and everybody in the national community agrees, that that, 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 that is the border between sovereign and non-sovereign Israel. So Israel withdrew. It had... Um, it had it made a it made a an agreement with everybody the united states the european union the palestinian authority everybody signed on to an agreement of movement and access and how the borders would be controlled and how it would all look um and then there was an election in 2006 and the majority went to hamas not the pa and then an even more complex arrangement was reached about how you would interact with hamas and then in the summer of 2007, Hamas decided to oust Fatah in a coup, and it took over the area by force. And since then, there is this kind of pattern that has emerged where, you know, it sends rockets in Israel's direction and Israel retaliates. When Israel initially withdrew, it promised its citizens that there would be peace. And if there were any rockets, they would just go back in. But that actually never happened. Instead, we fought, I think, about five wars since then. The three biggest ones were in 2007, 2008, 2012, and 2014. The rocket, the rocket launching would get big enough that it would be considered a threat. Israel would go in. It would it would take out a certain amount of targets. There would be a certain amount of civilian casualties. Um, there was, if you remember, in 2019, there was a very brief, like two-day war in which the rocket fire was very intense. And then in 2020-21, Hamas kind of expanded its agenda. Until then, all of its asks, all of its requests had really been about the Gaza Strip. But it shifts and it starts to talk about itself more as a representative of the of the entire Palestinian people. It goes to war with Israel over actions in Jerusalem in 2021. Then there, in each case, there's never a ceasefire. It's like a period of calm, like you. It's sort of what they call a restoration of calm. It's not. It's never a ceasefire because there's never a formal agreement, and Israel and Hamas don't don't negotiate in any event. So it was always like third party talks, mostly led by Egypt. And, and somewhere along the way, there was this theory that, you know, kind of the rocket fire was sustainable. 
when we talked about making peace with the Palestinians, when everybody talked about making peace with the Palestinians, everybody always kind of ignored the Hamas equation. And what I mean by that is we always spoke about the Palestinian Authority, which has no power over Gaza and from 2007 to this day has also not united with Hamas, right? So the Palestinian Authority is run by Fatah, which is not Hamas, and the two still remain deeply divided and deeply at odds. And we've just always assumed that if there was going to be any kind of a peace deal, that Hamas would come on board, right? And eventually you would have to unify Hamas and Fatah in some way, because you would have to have one overall Palestinian body that you were talking to in order to have a peace deal. And people really kept putting aside the the parts about Hamas that talked about how they just wanted to actually take over all of Israel. And the other thing that they also tended to put aside is the fact that one of the Hamas backers happens to be Iran, or its main backer happens to be Iran. And so we, we just kind of like overlooked it almost as if that, you know, that didn't, that wasn't significant in any way. And this would somehow work out. And in particular, when we spoke about moving forward with a Saudi deal, you know, that kind of a, this can all somehow be handled idea definitely came in, came into play. And in fact, the going Israeli theory was that Hamas was becoming a more responsible state actor, that it didn't necessarily, you know, want to join some some of you know the more extreme terror activities that you know when you compared it to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, it was more a body that could be dealt with. And the rocket fire that had come from Gaza since then was mostly the PIJ and not Hamas. And on the morning of October 7th, Israel did a massive 180 degree turn and it came to this understanding that actually, really nothing can happen as long as you have Hamas in Gaza, because what happened on the morning of October 7th is about Hamas wanting to take over Israel. And in so doing, its plans are, you know, to kill the Israeli population. And thus they now see themselves in an existential war with Gaza. And I think I'm gonna pause it there um, and see if people have any questions. So I appreciate, Tova, you sharing that very concise and useful timeline, because I think that you bring up certain pieces of what's happened over the course of history that, as you said, get lost in the shuffle. Right As we talk about successive opportunities and initiatives for peace, you can talk about the initiative with Ehud Barak in 2000, or the Olmert initiative in 2009, or the efforts uh, under the Obama administration, or even most recently the Trump administration, all of those are negotiations that are had with the Palestinian Authority. And there was a survey that was conducted by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research in June of 2023 that shows that the PA has about 18% support among Palestinians generally between Judea Samaria, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. And it's even lower in Gaza. And so they asked if there were elections held today 
This was back in June. Ismail Haniya, the head of Hamas, would have defeated Mahmoud Abbas 56 to 33 percent. So how does Israel conduct any meaningful kinds of negotiations with the PA if the PA doesn't re- realize even a modicum of popular support amongst its own people? Is that a question for me? Yes. These are all questions for you. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, I was like waiting. I'm like, they may be waiting. questions for God, too, if, if God has uh, the opportunity mm-hmm. to chime in on these things, because these are difficult questions. But from your reporting over 20 years, sort of how do you see that unfolding or not unfolding? I think that when we talk about any kind of a resolution to the conflict, right, um, two states or otherwise, and I think from a Palestinian perspective, it can only be two states, really. So um, you have to assume that that kind of a thing can only happen when you have two moderate democracies in place that have the support of their population, right? That's the only way it happens. If you don't have that, then you're looking at other options. But if you want any kind of a negotiated settlement, then it has to be at the end of the day with a moderate government um, and a moderate population, because the moment you move over into extremism, you're just in another language. So I think the hope always has been that the the polls reflected the reality at the time. I mean, the Palestinian Authority has its own issues. So the idea would be that really that there would be a third option that's not on the table. Sort of if you're you're asking people to choose between two different options, then, you know, this is what they choose. But if you put a better option in front of them, right, then, you know, they would go for it much like, I think, you know, if you took, you know, if you took Bitzel Smotrich of the um, Religious Zionist Party and you took um, Itamar Ben-Vir of the Motzma Yudit Party and say, well, these folks are in the government and how do you expect to make peace with these folks who don't even support a Palestinian state and the government in Israel right now doesn't so much support a Palestinian state. If you said to a Palestinian audience, how do they hope to see that peace could happen in this situation? I think they might say the same thing. So I think the hope is that peace can only happen if you have enough moderates on the ground in both cases that can seize control of the ship. And in Gaza right now, it's not possible to seize control of that ship because you have Hamas in power and it is not holding any elections since it seized power through guns and not, you know, not in the ballot box. So in all the years of your reporting, you know, one of the things that we're hearing so much in the international reporting of the conflict over the last two weeks and and certainly in the American media is a a deep concern for uh, Palestinian civilians. What can you tell us about what you know about the average Palestinian who lives in Gaza? Who is that person? What do they want? What's their... uh, sort of experience of life under Gaza, under Hamas, and to what degree 
would you say they desire to be rid of Hamas versus they champion Hamas versus uh, wanting peace with Israel, wanting the destruction of Israel? What have you learned about the Palestinians that are the civilian population about which so many have expressed so much concern? Well, first of all, I haven't been in Gaza since 2005 because, you know, as an Israeli, I'm not allowed in. And I've always considered the threat of kidnapping to be so real that I've never actually tried to go in. Um, so, you know, what I would know about the people in Gaza, unfortunately, is what I've read or the moderates that I've spoken to, right? But I, you know, I imagine that their experience would be what it would be like living under any fundamentalist government, right? That doesn't so much support the rights of women, um, you know, that lives under, you know, that lives with a religious edict. Um, and at the same time, you know, they're under fire from Israel. So I have never imagined it to be such a positive experience. But I can't, you know, you would need somebody who is Palestinian to really answer that question. And I would not be your person, unfortunately. So we see now that Israel has called up well over 300,000 soldiers and reservists uh, in a podcast uh, and an interview that I saw with public intellectual Micha Goodman recently. He noted that Typically, when Israel calls up its reserves, they count on an 80% show rate because, you know, people are sick or they have this or that. And they had 150% show up this time where you had lots and lots of people who weren't even called who showed up anyway. Uh, And you have this massive army kind of poised, ready to go. What do you see happening with that army? What do you see as the next couple of weeks? uh, What, you know... Do you see a ground incursion happening? Do you see an a full-scale onslaught coming? Do you see maybe targeted special forces? What what do you imagine will happen next? I think Israel's going to go in. I think if Israel has if ever there is a moment where you could shift what had seemed to be a perpetual equation, then where you were kind of stuck in this place where um you really had to be restrained and couldn't go in and take out Hamas. And yet you had to endure a certain amount of rocket fire, which really you shouldn't have had to endure, right? If in, if you were, if there was seemed to be no end to the loop of a Gaza war quiet, a Gaza war quiet, then this is the moment to go in and take out Hamas. And I think that's what Israel plans to do. I and, think and the what question does, no, but ahead. I don't I don't think anybody is really questioning that. I think they're they're questioning how Israel's gonna do it. Um everybody who's come here, Biden, Sunak, um, Schultz, they've all talked about, you know, being very careful about the civilian casualty count. Um, you know, the civilians are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They don't want to flee Gaza because they're afraid they won't be able to come back. They're concerned that this would be a Nakba 2. 
um, and that would be like the expulsion from 48. They were where they, you know, they fled once for their lives and they were never let back in. And they're afraid if they flee Gaza, they won't be able to get back in. Um, and at the same time, they don't really have shelters. They don't really have good places to go. Um, Israel hasn't let in a tremendous amount of aid. So they're they're really stuck between um you know, non-sustainable conditions on the ground and feeling that if they leave, they're really leaving. Um, but, you know, just moving back to the question for a second, um, I think Israel is going to go in and take out Hamas because before it couldn't do it. It couldn't do it because Israel itself wasn't, the Israeli public wasn't itself entirely convinced that Hamas posed an existential threat. And therefore, the the casualty count was important. There wasn't public support for the kind of casualty count that you would have had in a in in a in a ground operation to take out Hamas, and that's the only way you can do it. And there wouldn't have been enough international support because the international community wouldn't have been convinced that this was an existential threat. But now that everybody is already united on the idea that this is an existential threat, and you and the people in Israel understand in this very visceral way that their lives could be, you know, in danger, that they could wake up like the people in the southern community border southern communities did that morning and find themselves with no one to defend them, right? Has united the country in this tremendous way. And they're now ready. They understand that the lives lost are that will be lost will be lost in saving the rest of the country. So if you don't do it now, you wouldn't do it. And Hamas is only growing in power. And so this is the moment. So Israel's going to go in. And unless for some reason somebody finds, you know, some other solution, you know, their plan is to take out Hamas. I mean, the argument now is what happens the day after. You know, that they're not even arguing that part. They're arguing what happens the day after. So can you hazard a guess as to what that looks like? If Israel is successful, and, and, and what I was hearing today is that taking out Gaza and in, in, in taking out Hamas in Gaza is almost akin to taking out ISIS in Mosul. So Mosul in Iran is about this, in Iraq, I should say, is about the same size as Gaza City. And Hamas uh, has been likened to ISIS. Uh, and it took about nine months for the U.S. military to root out ISIS in Mosul and to uh, try to remove that threat there. So you're talking about a very long, complicated campaign. What do you imagine it would take to rid Ham, uh, Gaza of Hamas's leadership or presence, especially given how supportive the general Gazan population is of Hamas and how embedded and hard it is to distinguish between who is Hamas and who's a civilian. Uh, and what do you imagine that looks like? I think it looks like a long war. I mean, I think that is what that is what um, you know the Israeli leaders are telling the public that this will be a long war. I think nine months. I'm not sure people here are thinking it will be exactly nine months, um, but I don't think they think it's going to be over next week. 
So I, if I were to say that the 2014 war lasted for about seven weeks, something like that, seven, eight weeks, it was really a lot of like mid-July to the end of August, so maybe six. So I've imagined in my brain, you know, easily like probably about four months or so. But again, I would just be guessing. I think people here, like the, 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 you know, the murder of so many people, the killing of children and young families, you know, has, you know, immediately turned Israel on its head. And in the moment sitting now, right, before one goes in, there is, you know, there is almost wall-to-wall support for that kind of a protracted campaign. I think the question is more, is there international support? Because the international community was united on ISIS. But in spite of, you know, all the lines that every, you know, Western leader has been saying, it's not clear to me that the international public, particularly in the West, is united in comparing Hamas to ISIS. I think there's a lot of work being done to explain that the kind of killings that happened didn't happen. Um, you know, that it's, you know, some kind of fake news and attempt to discredit the Palestinian leadership. I think there's a lot, there seems to be a deep desire to see Hamas as one of the leaders of the Palestinian people, rather than, you know, a population that might be held captive by them, sort of, if I think more of like the Taliban, you know, in Afghanistan, right? Rather, you know, than, um, so... I'm not sure that Israel is going to have the time it needs. So I think it might not be able to achieve its objective, but it's almost a bridge you gotta, you're going to have to cross when you get there. It's starting out with that objective. And that objective is an objective that makes a lot of sense to Israel. And the truth is it makes a lot of sense for ending the conflict because if this is who your partner is in in negotiating peace, it doesn't, in the same way that the United States really didn't negotiate peace with Al-Qaeda and didn't negotiate peace with ISIS, I think it would be hard to come to a place of peace with the Palestinian people if they are represented by Hamas. So three weeks ago, you were seeing unbelievable strife within Israeli society. You had this very difficult encounter in Tel Aviv on Yom Kippur between religious and secular Israelis in an outdoor, public, mixed, uh, separated gender Yom Kippur service. There's been so much strife since uh, the beginning of the talks of judicial reform. Hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and other communities every Saturday night protesting the proposed judicial reforms. You were seeing Israeli society unravel. There was talk of of fears of even civil war. And it seems like that was a distant dream. What's happened in Israeli society? Have they just sort of put that on the back burner? Is there still a lot of angst between uh, Israelis in different parts of the population. What does it feel like to be in Israel today? It's all on hold. It's absolutely all on hold. First of all, it I mean, it, it would really depend on the outcome of the war, I would have to say. 
But for right now, like what happened that Saturday morning was a massive, massive intelligence failure of of proportions the likes of which is rarely seen in Israel. So it's everybody's deep belief that this government is finished, right? And what happens now, you know, the rest, what happens here on in, in some ways will really determine who will come into power next. But this government would have to be able to stay in power long enough now to finish judicial reform. Everything is now on hold because of the war. And everybody is, you know, it's sort of like if you're fighting with your neighbor, but then there's a fire in the apartment building and you need each other to get out. So maybe what you were fighting about doesn't seem so relevant. So right now, literally everything is on hold as Israel, you know, gets over whiplash and understands that it's facing an existential threat and is borrowing itself in for what could be a long war. And also one has to remember that it that all of your questions have really focused and in some ways that, you know, I've I focused also very heavily on Gaza because that is really, you know, in some ways that is the core of what's happening. But there's a very you have to put this in the broader context, right, of how the United States and Saudi Arabia wanted to make a military pact. One of the most, I mean, when you talk about, you know, things shifting tides, you know, one of the more significant military pacts or the most significant military pact it's made since 1960. um, And that military pact was to help protect Saudi Arabia against Iran. The, the normalization with Israel was a sidebar to that, to that military pact. Iran, Hamas's Iranian proxy group, they attacked Israel now. So maybe this was always the timing or maybe the timing was because they saw the chaos both in Washington and in Israel, and they thought it was a good time to strike. Or, you know, maybe it was to do it now before the Saudi deal came into being. And so you, it this, this war doesn't just present Israel with an existential threat against Hamas. It also presents Israel with an existential threat in general in the Middle East, right? Israel's cachet. What keeps it safe is that all the countries think you shouldn't really tangle with Israel. And now a thousand five hundred um, Hamas militants using, you know, sort of very low tech, disarmed a very high tech, sophisticated system. Well, if they can do it. Anyone can do it, right? So speaking so of instead that, of, yeah. instead, wait, let me let me just finish. Let me just finish the point. Sure. So instead, instead of banding, you know, instead of you know making peace with Israel because you're forced with, to live with it because they're the strong arm in the region, maybe you should like unite and attack it. So, you know, that's in some ways why Biden came. That's why you've got two carrier fleets, like in the Eastern Mediterranean. That's why you've got 2000, you know, troops on hold from the Pentagon. What people want to make sure does not happen in that time is that that this doesn't become a larger war and you already see violence with Hezbollah on the northern border. So, you know, I don't see people worrying about judicial reform, you know, or governmental politics for a while. So uh, you speaking about Iran and their proxies, the more dangerous proxy that most have uh, worried about in terms of their capacity is not in Gaza, it's in southern Lebanon with Hezbollah. Yes. And 
what is sort of the feeling in Israel about the likelihood of an engagement on Israel's northern border? You see some peppering of fire and mortar and, and shelling and uh, retaliations by Israel and, and, and small incursions, but nothing like a full-scale onslaught by Hezbollah. Is there a sense that you have from covering that northern border that Hezbollah is going to sit this one out? or that there's likely to open a full front on Israel's north as well? Um, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've been working, <laughs> I've been coming up with solutions for my building for, you know, how we could access bathrooms if we were all stuck in the bomb shelter in the basement for a long time. So in fact, I just called, I just called my landlord to explain to him that if he opened his basement, with the bathroom right next to the bomb shelter, that it would really make it easier for everybody in the apartment building. Um, and then I, and then I told you know the solution to the person who's in charge of the overall apartment building to put some more muscle behind that. So I guess some part of me thinks that yeah, we um, we're also going to war in the north. No, I think it's I think it's I mean this is actually true. I listened to the news report last night and I called my landlord and I said, hey, I go, I think you need to help out here. Um, but after that, no, I think there's a very high likelihood of war in the north. I think everybody thinks that, and I think everybody is hoping that all these leaders that are coming to the region, um, Biden and Sunak and Macron, who's going to come and Schultz, who was here, that they are working pretty hard to prevent that. But I'm not sure, I'm not sure it will work. I mean, I think people see an opportunity here. And, um, you know, I think Israel is galvanized around the idea that they are in an existential, an environment of existential threat for a reason. And, do you imagine, based on covering President Biden's visit and his meeting with the war cabinet and, and meeting with Israeli leadership, that if Hezbollah launched a full onslaught of Israel's northern border, that that would promote American engagement? I think it would have to literally, you would have to have Iran actively involved before you would get America in. But um, I think that, you know, in 2006, when Israel fought Hezbollah, the entire the entire north, all the way down to Hadera was pretty paralyzed. So for sure, you know, you're going to if you do that, if you have a war on both fronts, you will have an enormous amount of the country under fire at the same time. And, and typically, in other words, typically half of the country has been under fire, right? You either have a war in the South or you've had a war in the North, but this would really be the first time that you would have both fronts active at the same time. So what does daily life look like right now in Israel? Are people going to work? Are people going about their lives? Are people kind of holed up at home? What's it like uh, for Israelis today? Well, Jerusalem is like a pretty calm place for the moment. So, you know, what's weird about my life is that I don't even, you know, we haven't had a siren in Jerusalem in like a couple of days, I think. So I wake up in the morning and aside from the frenzy around it, it feels very normal. But if you look, if you're in the, if you lived in those Southern communities, you're, those Southern communities are not, you know, everybody's gone and they're like little army camps, Right. Um, the South in general feels very much like an area 
under war. There are soldiers everywhere. There's tanks everywhere. There's an, a massive amount of movement. There's a lot of sirens going off. They've evacuated a lot of Steyrot, which is, you know, a city of at least, I think, 30, 40, 50,000 people. I forgot to look up the numbers, but it's not, it's not a small place. So it's, um, you would feel very much like you were in a country at war. And what about in the north? But if, but, but, and if you're in Tel Aviv, where more of the, more of the rockets are hitting, then, then you would also feel that, right? But if you're in the north, then you're calm for the moment. You're, you're like waiting for it to happen. But it hasn't happened yet, unless you're on the very northern border, like Metula, and then, you know, you already feel the impact. So. Uh, I we have about uh, ten minutes left. Uh, if people who are with us have questions, you can look at the bottom of your screen, and there's the Q and A little piece, uh, and you can put a question in there uh, if you want to ask Tova a question. Um, I wanted to ask one more question while we see if there are yeah. others who jump in with their own questions. Uh, and so, again, if anyone has a question or a thought, they can put that in the Q&A at the bottom. Uh, but my question is, what's it like being an Israeli Arab today? If I'm an Arab who lives in Haifa, I'm an Arab who lives in Jaffa, I'm an Arab that lives in East Jerusalem, uh, an Israeli Arab and a citizen of Israel, what's it like for me in the midst of this conflict. What are you hearing from Israeli Arabs that you've met? Yeah, I don't want to, I'm going to skip that question because I don't feel like it would be fair to represent them in any way. So I just prefer to pass on to a question that I can answer. Okay. Um, Amanda, is there anything in our Q&A? Yeah. So the first question we got is, what can we do as ordinary everyday citizens just to help support and assist Israel in the hand? And if you know of any nonprofits or non-government organizations that you know of that are already on site that need to be mutual assistance. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I donate as much as uh, donate as much as you can, including for <laughs> flak jackets and helmets for the soldiers who seem who seem to be lacking them. Um, because, you know, the call-up is more than anyone anticipated. Plus, there are all these families who now literally lost everything. Um, you know, they fled with their lives barely. So they're all starting again. I'm happy to help Rabbi Levine, you know, put together a list. I don't have one offhand. As the temple website shows, there are uh, efforts to support the UJA Federation's campaign uh, that is providing relief to all kinds of organizations, large and small, in Israel, as long with Mug and David Odom. Uh, and there are other initiatives that are growing all the time to support communities like Kafar Aza and Ofakim and others that are trying to not only sustain the survivors of those communities who are literally had to leave their homes with nothing, sometimes not even with shoes, uh, and who are literally refugees within their own communities. Uh, as well as efforts eventually to rebuild those communities. Um, so uh, looking at um, just some other questions that we have, um, when you talk about the kinds of material assistance that Israel needs, uh, 
how much of Israel's capacity to defend itself is homegrown and how much of it is relying on support from, say, the American military, American military aid, or other support from other nations? Does Israel um, sort well, of have what it, you know, its own capacity to generate its own material, or does it sort of rely on those shipments from other places? In, I think it's it's a combination. Also, not as much my expertise, but if you look at what is what the United States is already providing it, that's ammunition, right? Um, also, you know, Iron Dome, the the interceptors and the batteries, it needs that. So I imagine that at the end of the day, it can't really fight this war without a certain amount of material support from the West. And what can you tell us about uh, what's happening with the, it sounds like almost 200 hostages that are held captive? Has there been any movement around release of any of them? We saw the horrific video of the young woman who was uh, paraded around, but beyond uh, you know, bombastic, uh, Israel releases every Palestinian prisoner it holds and will let the hostages go. Have you heard anything about any movement on returning any of the hostages? Well, I think that part of Israel's thing about humanitarian aid is exactly that. Like, no, we're not going to give you humanitarian aid until you release the hostages. Um, I think that we've never been in this situation before. Typically, you know, the hostages are soldiers for the most part. Um, and now you have civilians. I think that Turkey is working behind the scenes on on a deal, but I it it would be my guess that Israel's preference is to take them out and not do a deal because I don't see how you could do a deal for that many people. And if you did a deal, you would put a lot more people in danger. So somewhere they have to be drawing up a plan to go in and take them out without doing a deal, sort of more like an Antebi style thing would be the preferred option if that was possible. I think we have time, Amanda, for one question. One more question. Um, we have a question here of thoughts of it. Any thoughts on the pro-Palestinian rallies we've seen on campuses near us? Um, yeah, I think that's part of, you know, the narrative that puts Hamas as the as the um, legitimate voice for the Palestinian people. I think you know that concern for the Palestinians in Gaza is really important, um, but support for Hamas support for Hamas's operation against the South is really um, a statement about not believing that Israel should exist. So I think there's a line there between supporting the legitimate rights of Palestinians and um, not calling for the destruction of Israel that often gets crossed. And I think that's, and you know, there's a there's a big piece of American ignorance about who yes. Hamas is. You know, I think we tend to want to lay our own understanding on a conflict so that it fits in our own way of looking at the world. So when we want to look at the world as good guys and bad guys, uh, then you see 
civilians running for cover, these must be the good guys. Uh, and people who are blowing up buildings, those must be the bad guys. And not looking at, well, why is it, right? So when you hear Palestinians talking about Gaza as an open-air prison, there is no sort of deeper thinking about, well, why is that, right? What prompted that? Why is it that Israel has to have this big, deep, sophisticated technological fence and a naval blockade? Uh, and we saw what happens when you open that border. Uh, when you open that border, you had uh, thousands of uh, terrorists cross over and commit mass murder. Uh, and there's a sense, and it's interesting because having visited that area many, many times, I think about Ofer Lipstein of Blessed Memory, who was the Shara Negev Regional Council leader who had a dream of building an industrial zone where Palestinians and Israelis could do business together and they could uh, create work together and that would enrich not only the people that lived in southern Israel but could also benefit the lives of people who lived in Gaza who could come across the border to work in good jobs. This was his dream and his vision. Uh, I remember visiting with him just after the war in 2021 and hearing him talk with such idealism about what could be, uh, and he was killed defending Kfar Aza in the first minutes of the war. Uh, and so uh, I think there, uh, there's just a, a, a dread and a, and, a, and a pain that so many, certainly in Israel and those who love Israel, are carrying, especially when you see people championing slogans like from the river to the sea, which calls for ethnic cleansing and, and genocide of six and a half million Jews that call the land of Israel their home. Tova, I'm so grateful for you being with us today. I know that this is an incredibly busy time for you as a reporter and editor at the Jerusalem Post. Uh, we could hear all of the dings on your phone going off during our conversation <laughs> today. So we know we know uh, that your time and attention is being pulled in a lot of different directions. And in the midst of a conflict that is so difficult and complicated, uh, we appreciate your helping us gain a little bit of clarity. And uh, we thank you for being with us today. Thank you so very much for the opportunity. Have a great day. And thank Bye. you, everyone, who's joined us. And we'll continue to try to provide opportunities for to continue to learn and monitor uh, what's happening in the state of Israel uh, as things unfold. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brentzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word. And we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at tbeboka.org. We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions Podcast.